This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody. And welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Darren Byler, who's Assistant Professor of International Studies at Simon Fraser University. And he'll be talking about his new book, Terror Capitalism, Uyghur Dispossession and Masculinity in a Chinese City, which was published just a few weeks ago in 2022 by Duke University Press. Although now competing for global attention with a new cascade of awful international events, the situation in China's northwestern region of Xinjiang has not become any less urgent in recent months. And even if it has slipped off the front pages, one sliver of silver lining in the ongoing crisis there over the past few years has been that many more people are now more aware than they once were of where this place is and of who its Uyghur and other Muslim inhabitants are. Perhaps perversely, then, the system of camps and other repressive state measures intended to liquidate much of Uyghur identity has encouraged better understanding of the history and makeup of the region, brought to us by a range of impressive scholars and reporters. But one thing that's often been missing from the conversation is a granular and in-depth sense of how the regime of unfreedom, or enclosure, as the author of this book puts it, mushroomed into existence in the Uyghur region during the 2010s. As a result, Darren Byler's terror capitalism is a vital addition to our understanding of this emergency. Based on long-term fieldwork in Urumqi and other locations, Byler's book is a chilling and deeply moving portrait of processes of colonization and re-education whose advance has intensified since the 2014 onset of what the Chinese government calls the People's War on Terror. Marrying ethnographic attention to detail with piercing insight into grand techno-colonial processes carried out by a confounding array of agents, Byler is able both to offer an encompassing theory of the statist and corporate forces which have brought this situation about, and to demonstrate its horrifying wrenching effects on his mostly male Uyghur friends and interlocutors. Emerging clearly from the pages of the book are voices of aspirational rural-to-urban migrants, apprentice bakers, social media entrepreneurs, religious devotees, friends, artists, and above all, ordinary people facing an unassailable edifice of state violence and imprisonment, whose terror often seems to exceed any words one might reach for to describe it. But in our effort to get to grips with this situation and find some words to talk about it, I'm glad to say Darren Byler is here with us now. Uh, So I'll say welcome, Darren, to the podcast. Well, thanks so much. It's an honor to be here. Um, And well, yes, great to have you on as someone who I'm sure many uh, interested in the in the situation uh, are already very familiar with. Um, perhaps I'll begin by asking you, though, as we usually do, about uh, your own background and how you became interested in the Uyghur region and what's uh, what's been happening there. Mm-hmm. Well, um, it's a long story, so I'll give you the shorter version. Um, I, I went to the, the Uyghur region for the first time when I was an undergraduate student at Kent State University, which is in Ohio, which is where I'm from. Um, And uh, I was studying photojournalism at the time and was doing an internship uh, with a human rights organization. And it gave me a chance to sort of explore 
Asia. Um, and it, you know, I didn't know Chinese. I didn't really know much about the region. I was mostly interested in, in taking pictures. Um, but I was really struck by the society I found in Northwest China. Um, you know, as a photographer, the sort of the street landscapes, the 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 market culture of, of Uyghur bazaars was just a, a vibrant thing to, to look at. And I could see that, you know, as I, over time, continue to think about this place, that it was changing quickly, that uh, there's a lot of development happening. Um, you know, Chinese construction companies moving into the southern part of the region, which is the Uyghur majority area. Um, and so things are really changing fast. And um, the sort of intact or um, living culture of, of, of Uyghur society um where it was a Uyghur world, everyone speaking Uyghur, everyone, um, you know, you know, living in a space that they claimed as their own, where there was a lot of autonomy. I could see that that was um, being challenged and, and changed. It was a fragile space, and so I thought it would be an exciting thing to study, um, which you know took me to do PhD work at the University of Washington, where they had a Uyghur language program, um, and an advisor, Sasha Suling Welland, who um, is was doing work on feminist art in China in Beijing, um, and you know I thought you know one of the things I could study that wasn't you know, too sensitive, because um, already back then, Xinjiang was a sensitive topic, would be art production and um, um, knowledge production that, that Uyghurs were doing, a lot of it online. Um, and, and so, I, you know, that's that's what I embarked on. It's a PhD project that would look at art, would look at um, how Uyghurs and Han artists in this space were working together to represent what was happening to them the development, um, the processes of dispossession, um, and how they were building a kind of grassroots politics that would resist some of that. Um, you know, over time, I saw the digital technology that was offering that space to these artists be used as a, as a tool of surveillance. Um, and I also saw the space for solidarity work of, you know, any kind of politics of resistance really be um, diminished, subtracted, taken away from these people. Um, and so, you know, that, you know, the circumstances on the ground sort of shifted the project to look more at state violence um, and, and less at the potentials of, of, of art. Right. Well, there are some, uh, I guess, residues, if that's the right word, or, or artifacts of that earlier period of research in, in this book, too. Um, and I guess, though, yeah, given that what you're dealing with is such a uh, moving target and, and, you know, I think uh, the particular anthropological focus you have on the immediate present and on very granular events uh, makes this all the more remarkable work in many ways because when things are changing so quickly where do you put uh, a stopper on where do you how do you how do you represent that how do you sort of uh, bring it into some written form where a book is produced that is static and sort of you know says something um, uh, about a situation which changes even as you know after the book appears so I think uh, it's a tremendous piece of work both you know given your changing focus and the, and the shifting targets of, of what you're uh, discussing and we'll be getting into a lot more of that um so i mean how about the the book itself is it it's a uh, drawing on on your doctoral work or how did it kind of come about how does it relate to to the work that you carried out as a graduate student mm -hmm. well, a lot of it is is based on my my research uh, as a doctoral student I, I went to xinjiang to you know really get my language foundation sort of up to where it needed to be to do research in 2011, which was two years after there was large-scale violence in Urumqi in, um, in, in 2009. Um, and so already at that point, there was a lot of police presence. There was a lot of securitization. Um, but, you know, the, the urban planners of Urumqi, the capital, were building an art district um, in the northern part of the city. And so I spent a lot of time there with um, mostly Han artists um, who were interested in representing what was happening to them. A lot of those folks were old Xinjiang people, and that's how they talked about themselves. Um, there were people that had grown up in Xinjiang um, as part of the Bing Tuan, which is the People's Construction and Production Corps, a, a, a sort of... Uh, farmer militia group that was sent to Northwest China and, you know, beginning already in the 1950s. Um, so anyway, th those people identified as Xinjiang people and they saw what was happening now with uh, a lot of economic development and new migration from other parts of China as really um, you know, leaving them behind in some ways. And also they, they were quite cognizant of how it was affecting Uyghur society. And so, 
that space seemed to offer a site of critique of the system. Um, and it was also an accessible space for me as a researcher to access. Um, so in 2014 and 15, I went back and did another year and spent more time with those artists. But I was also then starting to work with Uyghurs. Um, I, my Uyghur language was up to where it should be by then. Um, and uh and I was living in a part of the city in the southern part where, you know, it was mostly around me, Uyghur migrants. Um, and so I was interested in how Uyghurs were representing themselves. Um, and I was associated with a, an institute that um, had a number of, 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 of media artists um, as part of the, the training that was happening at that institute. Um, and um, I was interested in how they were using WeChat to um, uh build these salons of, of uh, literature and film, Uyghur film that, that they would, you know, post online. And then, you know, within the space of a week or two, 800,000 people across the Uyghur region would watch their films. And so it was like really significant kind of cultural production that was happening. Um, but, you know, as I was hanging out with these people, they were telling me about how the police were coming into their homes, um, how they would, you know, check under their beds and in their closets for any un- unregistered people. Um, and the police were doing that in my apartment as well. Um, they were creating digital files for everyone. Um, they had instituted a new passbook system called the Bien Ka, which is the p- convenient for the people card, um, which is basically a good citizen card that uh, is specific to Xinjiang that uh, people from rural areas have to get in order to leave their home county. And so it was forcing hundreds of thousands of Uyghurs in the city to leave, go back to um, their villages. Um, and so that card and the police inspections became an important part of the story of like, you know, how do you live despite really, um, really intensifying surveillance? Um, and then, you know, when I went back for the last time in 2018, I saw that many of the people I had interviewed and the spaces I had inhabited before um, were now completely changed. And, you know, uh, so many people had disappeared into this camp system. And um, I was learning about all of the different uh, modes of digital surveillance that were being used at that point, which was you know, scanning people's phones, biometric surveillance. I went through you know, lots and lots of checkpoints during that visit to observe how the checkpoint system worked. Um, and so basically I saw over time, this space be overwhelmed by surveillance and technology um, and how this, how technology that seemed to promise something better for Uyghurs um, was now used as a tool to radically restrict and assess them, control them. Mm, mm. Yeah, well, perhaps uh, we will get onto that in a bit more detail uh, in due course, because it's such a key dimension of the overall overall process um, and what makes it such a distinctive, I guess, 21st century uh, phenomenon in many ways. Um, But yeah, we'll jump then into the kind of framing, I guess, uh, overall of of the project and and the book uh, and how it sort of you know, emerges um, terminologically, really, in your in your analysis, because I think uh, this is key to our understanding. And if in beginning with with terms and with you know theory, if you like, I think we approach head on some of the many difficulties which emerge in discussions of this issue, uh, because you know certainly in cross border discussions of these this issue, the application of various key terminology uh, to the situation ends up creating you know its own its own friction so we'll begin with a topic you deal with in the preface to the book and then also at greater length in the introduction um, and this idea of, of capitalism as a as a, uh, as a as a framing um the first chapter is called or the introduction is called what is terror capitalism so i guess i'll start by asking that kind of general open-ended question capitalism it's something a lot of people are talking about we've been hearing a lot about it <laughs> what is it that makes this project uh, you know uh, most most germanely framed in terms of capitalism. Mm-hmm. Well, it's one way into the project. There's other ways of framing it, um, but I, I felt like it was an important um, way of approaching this um, situation because it is you know what I observed <laughs> during my fieldwork. It's me making sense of what I observed, um, how um, you know, surveillance technology can become a growth industry, and how terrorism as a category can produce a population of people. Um, that stand outside of the law or outside of civil protections um, and can be treated with sort of impunity. 
um, and as a site of investment as well. Um, so, you know, terror capitalism is a frontier of global capitalism. That's how I'm, I'm thinking about it. It's similar to other new kinds of capitalisms. There's, there's a proliferation of these terms like surveillance capitalism, disaster capitalism. Um, and, um, and it's also related to an older framing of capitalist frontier making, which is racialized capitalism or racial capital. Um, so how does it fit into those things? Um, well, you know, terror, if we think about terror as like a disaster or a terror event as a disaster, as a disaster kind of event, and as counterterrorism as a way of preventing it, um, we see um, how it becomes a, a, a site of investment um, for the tech industry um, and um, a way of accruing data. Um, so, you know, terror capitalism as in terms of the way it's productive is really in, in, in two senses. Um, first it's, you know, in the way that these tech companies, there's, you know, 1400 tech firms now working in Xinjiang. Um, you know, initially they were focused on, um, breaking the autonomy of the Uyghur internet, you know, because Uyghurs are using Uyghur language. Um, but then it became more about control. Um, and these uh, firms are receiving state capital um, in the tune of, you know, at least $10 billion U.S. dollars, um, but, you know, over $100 billion when we think about infrastructure more generally that's been invested since 2017 in the region. Um and so they're, they're getting capital, right? Um, then they're also getting access to state data, which is really important for tech firms, especially in artificial intelligence, to develop new technique, tech, technologies, new prediction products. Um, and over time, they're also, you know, the system is, is producing a new kind of laborer. Um, um, an unfree worker who's being placed in, in factories associated with the camps or e even in addition to the camps. Um, and so it's producing this um, way of, of extracting labor from Uyghurs and Kazakhs and others um, who are not industrial workers prior to this. Um, so, you know, that's how it, it really becomes a, a capitalist system. It also, of course, has a political aspect to it. It's producing docile, um, subservient citizens. Um, and so it's, you know, enacting um, uh, or producing um, a solution to what the state would call the Xinjiang problem, which is that Uyghurs and Kazakhs are you know, not fully assimilated and resistant to the state. Um, this system is, is meant to sort of break them and, and turn them. Um, but I, I do want to also add one, one last thing, which is that the terror aspect of this um, is building on the, on the discourse that comes out of the global war on terror. Um, which, you know, posits that Muslims, particularly Muslim men of military age, are potential terrorists, like kind of in general, that they're always already potential terrorists. And so it has a racializing effect, um, which is how we should think about this as related to racialized capitalism. Um, so because Uyghurs are, you know, placed in this category of always suspicious, um, they are subject to continual assessment. Um, and um, based on assessments of their digital history, they at times can be deemed untrustworthy for these low-level terrorism crimes sent to the camps and put in, in, into the factories. Um, so you know, that's how I'm thinking about terror as, as related to a, a racialization of an ethnic difference. Mm -hmm. Well, that's uh, that's actually a very good good link on to uh, the next question I had, which is specifically related to this um, ethno racial uh, dynamic, um, as you as you very I should say adeptly kind of um, outline it. But um, obviously, uh, when it comes to terms like this, when it comes to terms like colonialism as well, which is you know one which of course is uh, absolutely inadmissible under any circumstances uh, within the context that this is occurring. You know, in inside China, um, there are certain hazards and pitfalls, as well as certain benefits from you know using terms which apply kind of uh, to you know perhaps Euro-American geographies, Euro-American cultural contexts, or Western, uh, if, if if we can use that too. Um, how do you see the significance of the kind of non-Western setting uh, and the uh, you know um, uh, use of these terms in this context as as a sort of uh, contribution you know that as part of your overall sort of framing of these 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 topics in the abstract 
Mm-hmm. Well, when it comes to colonialism, um, I think we have to think about it as related to capitalism. Um, so, you know, colonialism, capitalism have, you know, throughout time, through the history of capitalism, been been interlinked. They are, you know, they co-construct each other with colonialism acting as a kind of frontier space for capitalism. Um, you know, sometimes you know, colonialism starts with capitalism, you know, with, you know, companies like the Hudson Bay Company um, going to places like Canada, where I'm at now. Um, and then over time, bringing with them, you know, a, a, a military and, and administ- civil administration um, to protect sort of the economic assets that have been built. Um, so it sometimes works in that way. In, in the Xinjiang case, Case, you know, it's emerging out of a a kind of um, so out of an anti-imperialism, anti-colonialism. Uh, so you know, the PRC was founded as anti-colonial, anti you know Western European imperialism, um, and so it's you know about national liberation is how the state framed this, um, and there is some liberatory aspects to the founding of the PRC in the same way that there were some liberatory aspects to the founding of the of the Soviet Union, um, but it also brought with it you know increased control and occupation of of non-Muslim people, of non-native people to this space. Um, and that was the, the Bingtuan people that I've already mentioned. Um, but also kind of the capture over time of the grassroots institutions. The liberatory aspects of these is that they preserved the language and they allowed Uyghur culture to continue to they were just sort of, you know, adapting it or indigenizing it into a socialist kind of framing. Um, that starts to shift from a kind of settler socialism, which I think is how we should think about the Maoist period, to a settler capitalism and colonialism in the 1990s, which is when the state begins to send large numbers of Han people from other parts of China to the Uyghur majority areas and, you know, begin to capture the institutions in a new way. And so, you know, capturing institutions is like, is the, it's where you see colonial dynamics happening. So once the banking system, the education system, the mosque, you know, once those spaces are controlled by the state in, in, in this new, new way, and, and once there's a shift from Uyghur language and, and sort of Uyghur authority to Han authority um, in those spaces, that's when we start to see colonialism. And, and we also start to see a response from Uyghurs, you know, protest. Um, often the things that the state began to characterize as terrorism post 2001, you know, those things were response to local injustice, um, police brutality and things like that. Um, but, you know, it did also eventually call into existence things that we could count as terrorism that meet international definitions of terrorism, like the incident in Kunming in 2014, which is what sparked the people's war on terror. Um, so, um, I guess what I'm I'm sketching out here is a way that you know colonialism developed in the same way that China sort of uh, began to um, include elements of the global economy in its in its in its national economy, and also is it's responding to its older period of imperialism and, and colonialism. It's responding to a kind of moral wound of being a former colonized or semi-colonized space and now wanting to claim itself as a global leader and, you know, thinking, you know, to, to sort of posit and in, in, in equality with other global nations, you know, it can act as a colonial power. Um, so, so it's, 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 you know, it's, it's building on, um, sort of nested systems of imperialism to produce one in the present. When it comes to racialization, I mean, you see it in the way that the tech companies are reading the skin of the Uyghurs. They're looking at their the phenotypes of their faces, um, and they're building directly on police technology that's coming from the West, which is also you know racialized in many cases. Um, so as the institutions become so majoritarian, um, they begin to exclude um the targeted groups of people, um, and they're using, you know, ethno-racial difference in terms of like how people appear and also their language as a way of sort of predetermining how people should be treated. Um, and so that's how it becomes a kind of racialization. Right. Yeah. And that's very convincingly argued uh, in the book itself, the parallels, the very legitimate uh, comparisons 
with processes yeah, that we might observe in a whole host of other places, of course. But um, you do a very good job, too, of, of, of highlighting the specificity. You've alluded there to this um, you know, Mao period, the socialist era, the high socialist era, perhaps you might call it that, or as you've said, in the in the Xinjiang case, the settler socialist era, um, and how Maoist multiculturalism and the particular taxonomies and classifications of Uyghurs and other non-Han groups during that period may feed into uh, contemporary processes. Um, one other specificity that I guess you uh, draw out uh, and, and a terminological question that you uh, are careful and justifiably, I think, uh, yeah, careful with is use of uh, indigenous as, as a kind of counterpoint to the to the settler people, or rather, I should say, non-use, uh, because you draw attention to this, uh, well, <laughs> oddly, I guess, indigenous or, or emic category, yerlik, uh, a Uyghur term, which you translate as native. Um, could you say some more about the particular for, uh, construction or, uh, or or conceptualization of of localness or or of belonging of deeper belonging to that to the region that stands in contrast to the settler colonial processes that you describe. Mm-hmm. Right. So I was really struck by the way I would see Uyghur migrants to the city bring products or things with them from their villages um, and sell them, you know, in the bazaars or on the street. Um, and they would often have like these hand lettered signs you know, written in marker that said Yerlik in Uyghur language and, you know, Yerlik honey or Yerlik, you know, whatever they were selling. Um, and Yerlik means of the land or of, of a place, you know, in a literal translation. Um, but it also means native. Um, it's by you know definition halal because it's produced by Uyghurs. Um, and it's rooted in place. And, you know, Uyghurs also sometimes talk about their, you know, their family graves as the Yerlik, where they are from, um, like that, you know, it's, it's that, you know, closely tied to the land. Um, so, you know, for me, that was a uh, them claiming and enunciating, you know, on the sign that they are a particular kind of identity, that they are indigenous in some way. Um, Though because the discourse around indigeneity and colonization is so tightly controlled by the state and, you know, people don't have access to sort of, you know, internationalist movements of decolonization in their daily discourse. Um, It was them sort of, you know, developing a term on their own. Um, And, and so I I wanted to think about that term, Yerlik, and what kind of knowledge is being claimed, how traditions are brought into the future, into the present, um, through um, the, the knowledge that people learn in a local setting. Um, and how it, it forms a kind of collective identity, um, you know, across space. Like people have different kind of Yerlik traditions depending on where they're from, but they all see themselves as Yerlik. Um, and so uh, I, I wanted to, to really pay attention to that. And, and you know, I, I treat that as um, them saying that they're native. Uh, at the same time, you know, there's... Uh, intellectuals in the Uyghur community, both in um, the region and and more so in diaspora, who are resistant to the term indigenous uh, because they see it as a backwardness, as a primitiveness, which is how the Chinese state also talks about indigeneity. Um, There's a discourse of modernization um, and of bringing civilization to the Uyghurs that, um, you know, Uyghurs at least, you know, some have have internalized, um, and so there's an antipathy antipathy towards the the framing of themselves as indigenous. Instead, they want to say, "No, we're modern. We want to have our own state." Um, and here, I'm speaking about people in diaspora. Um, and so, I, I wanted to be careful in talking about indigeneity um, and and be clear that I'm I'm referring to the way that you know. I observed farmers, migrants talking about themselves um, and, and claiming it from that position. And but I, so I wanted to say that they're approximate to you know, other indigenous groups and how they claim their indigeneity. Um, but you know, it's a contested term. So it, it helps me to think with settler colonial you know, theory and also decolonization and critical indigenous studies um, and, and to situate Uyghurs within that that scholarship and that discourse. Right, and and to I guess find a place in what is often a challenging situation, where in order to engage with uh, decolonial thinking, uh, whilst also doing justice to local context, you know, you want to avoid importing 
paradigms from elsewhere because that reproduces a strange kind of, I guess, epistemological colonial, um, you know, way of way of conceptualizing things. So I think it does that work uh, very well. Um, and then finally, I mean, in our in our fairly uh, already, I guess, uh, in depth discussion of this of the setup of the whole book, but uh, the one other term, I guess, that I wanted to come come to, uh, which is there, of course, in the title is uh, is masculinity and and, and gendering. Uh, dynamics as part of this um, colonial uh, capitalist process. So could you say something about how gender gendering dynamics uh, interact with racializing ones um, and how that emerges kind of, uh, or how it emerged in your own work, you know, how it sort of, uh, I guess, was part of your own subjectivity in the field? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, what you just said is exactly part of the reason why I, I was moved in that direction. It's, you know, I'm speaking from my own positionality as a as a, you know, a, a male anthropologist, um, you know, and following sort of local and, you know, Uyghur traditions of like, you know, what is appropriate sort of um, relationship building. And also, you know, the because of sort of patriarchal traditions in Uyghur society, the majority of migrants to the city were men, um, young men who were sent by their families to um, make money for a few years, send it back to their families, you know, as they sort of wait for marriage. And so it was all these single men <laughs> who were coming to the city, often in groups of friends uh, from you know the villages that they were from. And so that's, you know, those are the people I was encountering um, and really starting to build relationships with. And, and relationships are really important because of the sensitivity of what's happening and, um, you know, not being able to not not being sure if you can trust people or not. Um, and so you really do have to build rapport with people before you can you know actually get to sort of the truth of their life experience and, and all of that. Um, and so, you know, that's how I started with thinking about men um, as as a as a group of people, um, and you know how it relates to the larger dynamics. Um, so, one of the ways that the state frames what they're doing is that they're saving Uyghur women from Uyghur men, because <laughs> Uyghur men um, are inherently dangerous as potential terrorists, um, and they are. Um, seen as the, the, you know, the force that's been radicalizing women as well, forcing women to veil and, and so on. Um, and so there's a kind of false feminism or, you know, imperialist feminism that the state is projecting onto Uyghur women, saving Uyghur women, um, which is, you know, building on other kinds of militarized feminism um, that the you know, U.S. You know, military or others have, have used to you know, justify invasions of places like Afghanistan, um, you know, to save the women. Um, so, so you know that's part of the story here too, and, and and there is real you know domestic violence towards Uyghur women that happens. You know that happens in all societies. There may be more of it in Uyghur society than in some others, um, but I think we can think about that as also um, a response of Uyghur men to the powerlessness that they experience, the sort of stresses that they experience. Um, because of the ways that the ways that they're blocked um, in terms of finding work um, in providing for their families. Um, not that I'm going to blame, you know, patriarchal and misogynist traditions, uh, you know, fully on the Chinese state, but it exacerbates it is what I'm saying. Um, so, you know, those are the dynamics that I was looking at. Um, I was primarily interested in sort of the positive aspects of, of Uyghur masculinity um, and how they, uh, you know, pushes people to build friendships um, and to protect each other, which is, you know, something I focus on in the second half of the book. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll move on to that uh, in, in due course, I think. But uh, that's, um, yeah, very, very helpful to see how that sort of uh, process is nested in, or the gendering process is nested within, I guess, the, the broader contours of what we've just been discussing. Um, but yes, with that kind of overall, I guess, uh, framing um, kind of uh, established, I wonder if we'll move now into the first sort of part of the book, which uh, comprises these first three chapters, uh, enclosure, devaluation, and dispossession. Uh, all the chapters have these kind of extremely resonant and uh, I think um, pithy uh, titles, which, which uh, you know, together create a very sort of forceful impression of, of what's going on in the most economical terms possible. Um, in the first chapter, you, uh, I guess, 
give us a fuller picture of, of what you've already alluded to, this sort of um, vast sort of technological edifice built up over time uh, involving both uh, state and non-state actors. Um, and whilst, of course, uh, your main focus is the, you know, Yerlik, if you like, or the, the Uyghur life within the Uyghur uh, region, there is perhaps a little more to say about the kind of uh, processes from the outside perspective, or at least how uh, different actors are involved in it. So, I mean, whilst recognizing that what you, as, as you say about the book, is a representation of Uyghur life under colonization, is, is your kind of cap encapsulation of it later on in the book. Um, what can we say about the role that state and non-state actors play in this process of, uh, of enclosure? Um, how to understand the I don't know, complicity, if that's the right word, or the contribution of individual settlers or workers for the tech companies that are involved in these processes. How do we um, disentangle, I suppose, the role of the state versus uh, para-state or non-state um, actors in this overall dynamic? Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, I've really privileged or foregrounded the the non-state actors in this book or the, the corporate state actors. Um, you know, corporate you know, private public partnerships is is how a lot of this is is run. Um, but there is you know another story to tell, a biography to to or series of them to you know talk about you know how Xi Jinping and Chen Chuangguo and other key leaders made the decisions that they made um, and mobilized you know policy and state capital in certain directions. Um, but, you know, for me, I was you know, really thinking when I was talking about digital enclosure about the technology companies like, you know, Tencent, you know, which owns WeChat um, and um, all of the surveillance companies like Hike Vision and Dahua and the, you know, those that are building the algorithms, SenseTime and MugV and others um, who are receiving, you know, millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and are using that to um, rapidly prototype new technologies um, in this space. So it becomes a kind of incubator space for these technologists um, to rapidly develop new tech. Um, often, you know, I, I draw on the work of David Yang, um, who's at, uh, an economist at Harvard, who talks about how within two years, um, many of these startup companies would develop a, um, a commercial application out of, you know, the sort of state investment that they had received. Um, so there's a direct sort of, you know, uh, military or policing work to marketplace uh, sort of dynamic that's in place here. Um there's also, of course, the low-level police, the sort of police assistants who do a lot of the manual work of implementing the system. The state hired around 60,000 of those people and another 30,000 more uh, like regular police um, to implement the checkpoints and also um, you know, do the work that's necessary in the camps and so on. Um, and then there's another million or so volunteers who are also not really state workers exactly. They're, they're you know, company employees who are drafted or forced to volunteer um, to be sort of human surveillance people in, in Uyghur villages and Kazakh villages. Um, and so, the, you know, it's a whole of society um, war on terror. That's what the people in the people's war on terror means. Um, and, you know, everyone is asked to play a role play a part. And some people are benefiting more than others. Some people have more coercion than others. Um, it's sort of, you know, a giant crime that's hard to pinpoint as at any one person because it's just so sy systemic. And also people that are working within the system don't really understand how the whole system works. They just know about their task that's right in front of them. And the technology also aids in that system. So you're just looking at an interface on a phone and it's saying this person is untrustworthy and you don't know. It, the, the system says that it's, it's true. Um, so it, it, you know, human agency is, is limited by the tech itself um so you know that's how the system works um and that's what i wanted to show um not to you know so it's not it's less about you know finding out who's truly to blame for the system and, and more about showing the dynamics of the system how banal it is um and how sweeping and systematic it is right and it's exactly in a way that banality that makes it so effective i suppose that the, these sort of apparently agentless tendrils of both capital just flowing around as it is given to do and 
technology, the flows of data and information that seem, uh, if not autonomous on their own, you know, to, to be just sort of a, a kind of um, almost a, 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 like a liquid that everyone is just swimming in uh, without you know, or bobbing around in without any individual person being the sort of architect of the entire thing. Um, in a way, I, I think that's that's what makes this analysis so convincing uh, of why it's so powerful, why it's something that is so so distinctive and and irresistible uh, in this context. Um, but moving on to, I guess, the sub more subjective experiences of that, uh, these first three chapters deal uh, in some detail and some real rich ethnographic um, uh, detail with the experience of migrants to the city, um, their engagement with technologies that you've already mentioned, the social media and so on, and the kind of, uh, I guess, brief honeymoon of, of autonomy and creativity that that encouraged, um, and also efforts by rural to urban migrants in Urumqi to build sort of lives and careers for themselves and, and sort of accrue social capital and, and make something out of their, out of their lives. Um, so could you kind of give us a broader portrait of the kind of migrant experiences that you wanted to foreground here? Um, I mean, I think it's, a, it's your call. If you want to say more about the social media use that you already alluded to and the changes in that over time or the kind of ways that people are, you know, uh, aspiring to a certain form of perhaps urban, um, weaker existence uh, that is devalued, uh, what, what, what were you sort of trying to bring out most about those experiences? Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, the second chapter, which is about evaluation or devaluation, um, was me, you know, I, I wanted that sort of towards the front of the book um, because I wanted people to have an understanding of how different kinds of labor, different kinds of bodies are evaluated differently by this system, you know, both, you know, the political and technical system. Um, and so, you know, Xinjiang is one space where Han migrant workers, you know, people from places like Henan or Anhui um, can really find um, state support for their migration. You know, a lot of those migrants would say that they'd been to Shanghai or to Beijing before as workers and you know, found that they weren't really welcome or they had to really struggle to, to make it um, in, in those places. But they said in Xinjiang, you know, the, the police are here to support us um, and the cost of living is lower than eastern China. And the you know income is not bad. It's easy to find work, um, and so they felt like they could really start their lives. So Xinjiang sort of promised them um, a, a new frontier, which is the you know, that's what Xinjiang means. Um, that was available to them, um, and that they're you know they were supported in, in a different way there. Um, and so I'm talking a lot about a uh, Chinese concept of sujer, which is a achieved quality or human capital, um, and how these mi migrants felt like they were you know achieving that to a certain degree in, in the Xinjiang space. And, and I'm thinking about, you know, how this compares to other kinds of, of capital accrual or sujer um, in other places in China. And then at the same time, I'm thinking about how, how Uyghurs who are coming to the same city, to the same space, feel as though they're constantly blocked and how that their labor is not being valued in the same way, um, how they're you know always on the run from the police being forced to leave. Um, and, uh, that they're the indigenous or Yarlik, the native work that they carry with them into the city is not valued. Um, and so that's just me sort of, you know, showing how this works. Um, the next chapter, which is about dispossession, um, is focused on, you know, what happens in the village. So I'm actually going to the village. That's how the chapter starts. Um, and um, really showing you how tight the policing is in those contexts and how limited opportunities are for Uyghur villagers um, because of the dynamics that have happened over the last two decades there. And so, you know, the city promises um, a space of anonymity um, and a space where they can, you know, make some money um, to find a better life. Um, they're also being drawn into new kinds of cosmopolitanism by the technology, you know, thinking about the, the broader Muslim world. They're watching Iranian films. Um, they're reading about what's happening in, um, in Istanbul, um, about the Arab Spring, stuff like that. Um, and they're also, also, also getting involved in piety networks, um, Islamic teaching groups, um, Quranic study groups on, on WeChat. Um, and so it's, it's, it's presented to them as a, you know, a way of finding a, a contemporaneity, uh, a, a way of, of um, you know, finding a future um, through technology and through migration to the city. Um, 
but I show at the end of the chapter that, you know, that's also turns out to be a false promise um, that, you know, it, it actually by, by claiming an individual sort of persona online, they're exposing themselves to the state. Um, and they're also um, it, it, severing or, or, or distancing themselves from the community support that they might otherwise have in the, in the countryside. Um, so, you know, it's, it's talking about agency, but also processes of dispossession that are, you know, targeting that agency at the same time. Mm-hmm. And those come into focus, I think, very clearly uh, in a number of areas where you very deftly line up sort of parallel or cognate notions within Uyghur linguistic and cultural space and then within settler Chinese, Han Chinese uh, sort of linguistic and cultural space. This Sujur idea has its own counterpart in Uyghur with this notion of Sapa, right? And and also a sort of uh, quality or a sort of um, aspirational achieved sort of, I don't know, uh, urbane subjectivity or something, but one that is not actually equivalent because of a lot of the you know limiting structures one is not 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 actually available ultimately um and i think it's it's those parallels that you draw between processes which look quite similar which look quite universally part of a bigger chinese story across the last 20 30 years that are that are very distinctive in this you know ethno-racialized colonial capitalist frontier context um i think i think you know that's something that's very effective about what you uh, what you discuss, um, but moving on uh, into the latter part of the book, you kind of break down a, a, a few more, I, su- I suppose, granular uh, strategies or, or practices that uh, emerge in this very very constrained context. Um, and we've alluded already to friendship and, and the role of masculinity within that. Um, but could you say a bit more about uh, the, the role of friendship here between male Uyghur uh, migrants to the city? Um, is it best seen, for example, as a functionalist response? Are these tight, close-knit friendships best viewed as coping mechanisms primarily or how to understand their role within you know, the very difficult circumstances? Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, in some ways, they're, they're amplified as a response to the situation that people find themselves in. Um, so they are reactive, I suppose, to a certain extent. Um, but the friendships that Uyghurs have come out of an older, you know, native tradition of friendship um, in village settings. Uyghurs have so many different words for friend. It's something that, you know, struck me as a Uyghur language learner. Um, in some places like Hoten, they, you know, people typically end their sentences with the word friend or adash at the end of it um, when they're speaking to a friend. Um, it's just something that, you know, is so emphasized in society. And, and some of that has to do with, you know, gender segregation um, that has a a longer history in in Uyghur society and has been amplified, I think, um, by um, the current current situation. Um, And so there's, you know, homosocial relations are an important part of of Uyghur culture, maybe more so than some other uh, uh, societies. but I really wanted to zero in on a particular kind of friendship, um, a kind of friendship that they call a John Jigger Dost, <laughs> which is a, um, a someone who shares the same sort of life spirit or John, and also um, the Jigger, which is your liver organ. Um, and so you're both kind of um, soulmates and also blood brothers, or you know, you're sharing the same liver. Um, uh, and it, it's just a kind of intimate a friendship between um, men that I've never really observed close up, you know, anywhere before in my life. Um, and, um, you know, what it means for these migrant men to the, to the city is that it means that they share food every day, that they guard their friendships really closely. They're jealous um, of, of other people, other men. Um, and like, I felt that myself, even though I wasn't like a, a you know, unofficial John Jigger dost of anyone. Um, but I was close friends with a lot of different groups of men, um, and you know they wouldn't want to. They didn't want to share me with other other groups, um, and like they wanted me to meet with them. And if I didn't answer the phone when they called, like there was something wrong. Um, there was you know uh, just just a, a lot of kind of intense intimacy um, in, in those friendships, um, and and really what they were doing in in the friendship space was telling stories about what had happened to them in the previous week or months, um, and they would you know often tell the same stories over 
over and over again. It's a way of sort of narrating themselves um, as you know powerless people, but you know representing themselves as uh, as having a kind of authority or authorship of their own life story. Um, and one of the ways that I, I kind of explored those friendships and tried to think about them as um, a sort of structural or conceptual um, category of, of Uyghur life was um, to use the, a book, uh, a novel by Perhat Tursun, which I, I co-translated with uh, one of these friends, um, that is representing a, a singular man, Uyghur man, who comes to the city to try to find work and is always blocked. Um, and, and this novel you know, is something that I talked about or read with a bunch of these young men. Um, and it became a, a, a sort of an object that they could respond to that sparked their own memories, their own ideas about what counts as a good life, um, why someone might be alienated, you know, how friendship is so important to feeling as though you're a successful person. Um, so, you know, for me, like in the end, these friendships are a way of, of protecting each other, even as you're in a, you know, a shared vulnerability. Um, and as a way of staying alive, I mean, they would, these young men would, or many of them were very depressed. They would talk about suicide and things like that, but how their friends would save them or keep them from committing suicide. Um, so, you know, for me, it was a lesson in what friendship means um, and, you know, how it can act as an anti-colonial um, strategy and relationship. Um so, so that's, that's how I came to friendship. Um, and, you know, it's one of the things I wanted to highlight as a way that, you know, Uyghurs respond, they live despite the circumstances that they find themselves in. Right. And those are circumstances in which, as you also elaborate in many other places, lots of other uh, practices of Uyghur social reproduction, the kind of sustainability, viability of Uyghur society is, is, is destroyed, is fundamentally interrupted, you know, the transmission of of anything which in however woolly a way we might refer to as culture of language of, of everything is kind of interrupted uh so you know the, the kind of reproduction in this context as you've said of, of maybe older long-standing traditions of friendship but also in a very particular contemporary context is it's a very powerful story you tell and one which also resonates i think with um yeah broader anthropological practice you point out here that Anthropology itself, you know, can be reconceptualized in this sort of anti-colonial friendly way. And I think, you know, what you said about the uh, sort of strikingness of coming upon these very warm uh, male friendships uh, in the field. I mean, I think anyone coming from a sort of cold Anglo-Saxon Protestant type uh, cultural context, um, you know, not not to not to uh, be too self-confessional about it, is often struck at how turns out people are often very very close in other cultural uh, cultural settings. So there is something broader about fieldwork uh, among among I guess uh, perhaps Anglophone uh, scholars to say there too. Um, but in the final two chapters, um, you uh, draw out further aspects of, you know, uh, I guess. Everyday, everyday practices, kind of um, low-level efforts to eke out certain certain forms of existence to carve out autonomous space within these uh, extreme circumstances, um, and among other things, you zoom in on uh, this early experience uh, you had, or at least I, I, I'm imagining drawing on your initial um, work with photographers and artists and so on by focusing on a, a Han Chinese. Uh, settler photographer, one of these old Xinjiang people uh, who uh, whose work documents uh, life in the outskirts of Urumqi. Um, and through that and the subsequent chapter, you bring out another pair of these terms, this sort of binary of the uh, Manglio, the kind of wandering, uh, I guess, well, vagabond uh, Chinese, uh, Han Chinese figure that Chen Ye, the uh, photographer, identifies himself with. And then by contrast, uh, Musapir, this uh, uh, term used in Uyghur for a traveler or a sort of mobile person. Um, so if it's possible to sort of <laughs> draw together those chapters and what you say in them, could you kind of uh, sh tell us what light that, that that pair of ideas sheds on the divergent experiences of uh, settler, Han Chinese settler uh, people in Xinjiang and, and uh, Uyghur population? And I guess broadly what that says about whether there is any possibility at all for uh, reconciliation, rapprochement, or solidarity, you know, on any level, uh, however improbable. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, Chen Ya, this Han photographer, he grew up in a village just north of the, the city of Rumchi. Um, and you came to the city to, to study, to go to college, um, and but then couldn't find a job. And so he became a photographer. Um, and he also had a, a Buddhist practice. He's a really interesting guy. Um, he's, you know, he lived at a monastery for a while. Anyway, he was really intrigued by what he was observing in the informal settlements around Urumqi, where Uyghur migrants would, you know, try to eke out a living. Um, and so he, you know, started to document their lives and built relationships with, with those people um, and really developed a kind of practice of a minor politics, which is what I call it, um, sort of drawing on the work of Shu Meishir and, and a few others, um, which is a grassroots politics that, you know, is not um, about uh, seeking a kind of formal recognition, um, but it's about solidarity um, and solidarity work. And, and, you know, he did that through his his practice, trying to help Uyghurs to navigate the bureaucracy of the city, um, but also by the way that he, you know, showed and um, through his work and through his practice, how Han people could respond to the situation in a way that um, wouldn't exacerbate um, the tensions that were there existing. So he became a kind of translator of Uyghur experiences for Han people. And so I, I really wanted to highlight his story because I think he's an exemplary figure. He's someone who I was drawn to because of his ethics. Um, and I think he serves as a kind of model of the kind of solidarity that, that Han people can build and do build in this space. There's you know lots of Han people in Xinjiang and in China who are opposed to what the state is doing. Um, and you know some of those people are the, you know, the people that have leaked information about what's going on um, in other, often their, their capacity for resistance is pretty limited. And so it's more about like, you know, getting information out for their neighbors, um, trying to get their neighbors out of the camps, those sorts of things. Uh, but, but I, you know, his story is important because it, it shows that there's fracture in the system um, and, and that, you know, it's, it, the system does not speak for all Han people. Um, but you know when he he so he claims a Mongol um, position as a traveler um, as a migrant worker um, that's you know, he self identifies in that way and like Mongol is a term you know, elsewhere in China that you know in the past was used in a derogatory way towards migrants um, but then you know migrants started to claim it as their own and say yes we're Mongol and we're proud of it we're we're migrant workers and we're proud of it and so you know he's claiming that term. And that's similar to um, the ways that Uyghur migrants talked about themselves as being Musapr, which is um, a traveler uh, in, in Uyghur language, um, but you know a traveler um, who's sort of seeking the existence of God. That's one of the ways that um, it's talked about in a sort of Sufi tradition, um, but also in a kind of, you know, being homeless, it means being a refugee as well. Um, it, 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 although there's another term for migrant. And so when they say Musafir, they're being um, sort of poetic and, um, you know, cognizant of, of um, the sort of spiritual and, um, you know, other implications that are, are connected to it beyond the economic. Um, and so I was really interested in how the Musafir form sort of mosque communities, because yeah, that's often how people sort of organize their life when they got to the city. Um, and, and so they, you know, build a kind of agency that supports each other, a kind of lateral agency. Um, but they're also making themselves a target by being associated with the mosque and being associated with religious practice. Um, and, you know, for them, it's not, it's a lot less of a choice than it was for Chen Ye. Like Chen Ye could have gone back to his village and he, you know, he could have been a farmer and it would have been fine. But like these people felt like they, they couldn't live their lives in the village. And so they came to the city to try to find work and, and, and more freedom. Um, and, you know, they felt less choice, um, I think, in, in how they, they got to their Musapur position. Uh, but, you know, they also felt a sense of belonging, a sense of uh, protection spiritually uh, by claiming that identity. Um 
So, you know, that's that's how I'm thinking about, you know, why people choose to to move um, and what kinds of communities are available to them when they move. Um, and, and in the Xinjiang context, the the long mu, uh, the, the Mang mu position is much better protected than the Musafir position. Um, most of those Musafir, like already in 2015, 200, 300,000 of them had been sent back to the villages. Um, but, you know, when I went in 2018, almost all of them were gone. Um, there was just entire abandoned streets of people that have been sent back. And, and many of those people have ended up in the camps. Right. And, and I mean, what, what you reveal there, I guess, as previously with this sort of hinge between Musapur versus uh, Manglio, is this notion that there are things that are to some extent translatable. Uh, the other thing that you point out in the final chapter, uh, the family you focus on is, you know, what's known as the, the family is known as a what's known as a nail house in China, right? A dingzhu, which is the kind of uh, final resistant single household, uh, you know, kind of often surrounded by uh, demolished other buildings and, and with kind of encroaching new apartment blocks. You see this in a lot of places, but uh, what you highlight there with this kind of terminological hinge, I suppose, is the uh, very distinctive again. Um, experience of some of those broader dynamics within a within a Uyghur context. Um, so thank you, Darren. I mean, there's an awful lot more that could be said about literally every aspect of this book. There's so much depth and detail and nuance uh, in every chapter uh, that we've really only scratched the surface. Um, and you end, I should say, too, in your conclusion with a sort of final reflective uh, account of your 2018 visit and seeing, as you said, the, the, the places, the spaces, the people kind of gone. Um, so it's a it's a kind of damning, I guess, but moving final uh, kind of coda there. Um, before we let you go, though, uh, and thank you for appearing, I'll let, I'll ask you what you're kind of working on next. Uh, you've already alluded to your translation of Perhat uh, Tursun's um, The Backstreets, uh, which is, I believe, imminent. But uh, what else are you uh, working on currently? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the the Backstreets novel will be out uh, from Columbia University Press in August, September. Um, I have another book project uh, that's looking more at the at state power and bureaucratic power more directly, less at economy, um, and more uh, historical. That's you know thinking through the Mao period um, into the present. Um, and it's really drawing a lot on on police documents. So, you know. Part of what frames the first chapter, you know, I, I had some access to this as I was writing, was the hundreds of thousands of internal police documents that were received by the Intercept and then given to me as an analyst to review. Um, and, but there's just so much granular detail in these police documents um, that I felt like you know they really deserve a kind of book project. Um, so I'll be doing that and also drawing on interviews with former detainees, people that have left the region since 2018 um, and are now in Kazakhstan and other places um, to sort of piece together you know, how state power has been exercised and is being exercised in this space. Um, that's a, you know, a work in progress and will probably be another year or two before we get anywhere um, closer to publication. Um, I also have another project um, farther down the line that's focused on global China and infrastructure development in, in other places. Um, so I want to think about how the tools of digital enclosure that were used in Xinjiang um, are being built in other places um, and how they affect people differently there and try to sort of trouble the idea of you know, authoritarian uh technology transfer and ideology transfer that, you know, do these technologies bring and produce exactly the same kind of dynamics that we see in Xinjiang? And, you know, the answer, of course, is no, Um, but they do produce other dynamics. Um, And so I'm going to go to Kuala Lumpur and and look at, at the way a smart city, safe city system there is affecting stateless populations which include Uyghurs, because there's a number of Uyghurs that live there, um, but also uh, Rohingya folks um, who have fled from Myanmar. Um, and so, you know, that's another place where I can think in a, you know, in an adjacent space um, that is Muslim majority and is democratic in some ways um, about these technologies and, you know, how different, how similar are they to the ways that they're being used in China? Um and how much are, do they just sort of replicate 
the sort of policing surveillance systems that we see in, in European and North American contexts? Um, and, you know, how do people navigate those kinds of surveillance systems? So it's, it's a, not an uplifting book or project. Um, but I think, you know, it will give another sort of analytic for thinking about global China and, and thinking about the dynamics that I saw play out in Xinjiang. Um, and I, there is, there is more hope um, than what we see in Xinjiang in, in the Kuala Lumpur case. That's uh, that's that's a relief to hear, I suppose. But uh, anyway, both of those sound like fantastic uh, complements and and supplements and expansions of uh, of this existing book, and and uh, as if any need, as if any gaps needed filling in in what you've already worked on, uh, which you know of which there are not many. Uh, I think those will do a terrific job. Um, Darren Byler, though, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. It's been wonderful talking to you. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Listeners, thank you too, as ever, for listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. It's a podcast on the New Books Network, and it will be back with you again very soon. Goodbye. <laughs>